Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mixtape Memories. Memories. I'm Jenners. I'm Matt Hartspeed. Today we have two very special guests with us. Our first two guest uh, episode here. Um, we have Holly Miranda and Ambassador Parsley from Hi. INE Records. Hey. Hello. Ooh, welcome. Nice to see you. Now, Ambassador, you recently changed your name. I did. So um, tell me a little bit about that. My actual name is Ambrosia Parsley, and I, I've made records like that for a long, long time. But um, the last show that I played before lockdown was in Arkansas with Chris Maxwell for his uh, record news store number two. And uh, uh, one of his friends uh, works in government there. And so to fuck with Chris Maxwell after the show, they he arranged for me to get the Arkansas Traveler uh, Award, which basically is he made me an ambassador to Arkansas, signed by Asa Hutchinson and everything. So it's technical just to annoy Chris Maxwell. That's so, so crazy. <laughs> so I and and part of the the only way that you can be an Arkansas traveler, which I like Muhammad Ali was one and, uh, you know, past presidents. And it's a real it's quite an honor, but you can't be from Arkansas to get it. <laughs> And Chris is from Arkansas, so I tell him that I will always be an ambassador and he will never be an ambassador. And so every time somebody calls me Ambassador Parsley, it drives him insane. And there's like there's very few pleasures lately, you know, like we're locked inside, <laughs> we can't go and do anything. So if I can just bother one of my best friends a little bit every single day, that's like... <laughs> A blessed event. So I officially changed my name. It will be on my tombstone. You will pride as gag from my cold dead hands. <laughs> Does he have to call you ambassador? Well, yeah. I mean, he won't. But if everybody else does, it just every time somebody else calls me ambassador, his eyes roll so far back in his head that it, it's it's fun for absolutely everyone on earth except for chris maxwell <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> oh my god that's, that's amazing so holly do you call her ambassador always <laughs> perfect perfect i salute her too and I, I take a knee and i kiss her hand and i curtsy <laughs> oh my gosh so wait tell me a little bit about how you two originally met because now you're running a label together but i want to know a little bit about the friendship history um we were on our way to see jonah's police woman play at i think um mm -hmm. oh, the, the venue on ludlow street the living room the living room and wow. oh we i saw walking. her there back in the day too oh so great <laughs> And we had just come from like a dinner. We just met. I'd been working um, with Ambrosia's husband at the time for a couple of years um, as my publisher and manager of my old band. And um, we were walking. I think I was like up ahead of a group of people and I bent down and I pulled a joint out of my sock. <laughs> and I walked from the restaurant to the venue and, um, and Ambrosia was standing next to me. And that was it. That was the start yeah, of a great friendship. We smoked that joint together and walked into the show. Cartoon bluebirds. <laughs> and she was like, I think I like you. Oh, <laughs> you keeps a joint in their sock. <laughs> Love it. First joint. <laughs> uh, but then we just started singing together. Like I would go up um, uh, to their house up in the Catskills and uh, we started singing kind of like I'll, I sit on the kitchen floor while she cooks with the guitar and we just sort of, you know bumble around things and um and then kind of slowly we started performing together and um i don't know how many years that's been now over a, over a decade i would think over right 10. yeah i think so yeah i mean that youtube video that you sent earlier was like from 2010 of you two singing up in, in phoenicia. phoenicia oh yeah on the porch of the mystery spot yeah yeah yeah, so. a Buddy Holly song. That was the first time we ever sang together. Yeah, that was the first time. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. It seems so natural. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Have you two seen each other over the course of the year while everything's been going on with the label? Or how has that been? <laughs> yeah, we were actually in lockdown together um, <clears throat> at Chris Maxwell's uh, place up in Woodstock. And that's kind of where this whole, um, where everything began for the record and um, and this label. and uh, But yeah, we were together for what, like five months we were all there. But before that, Holly and I were, we were, we had a little studio Mm -hmm. out of um, an apartment in Chelsea that we called High Pony, and we had started to record my record there, Mm -hmm. Um, and parts of Holly's, we were just, you know, in the closet, and... uh, vocal booth in the closet. (laughs) (laughs) We would, like, text the neighbors, we're like, there's a horn section coming today, is that okay? What Um, else do you need? (laughs) <laughs> but but when uh, like um, I was also bartending in Brooklyn, and I think my last day of work was like March sixth or something like that, and then things started to get really scary. And Chris Maxwell, who Holly and I, uh, we made the Christmas record together. I don't know if you know about that, but um, it's actually my favorite record that I've ever been a part of. The only oh. one I can actually listen to and have fun. Um, Chris was like, no, just come up here and we'll see what's going. We'll figure it out later because they have uh, a pottery shed out in the back, you know, and they're like, you can, you can just stay out there like a little mother-in-law apartment. So Holly and my 14-year-old son and I all went and we ended up being at Chris's house for like three months. <laughs> it's longer than that. I feel like I was there almost five months. <laughs> I lived in the treehouse after a while once it got warm enough. (laughs) Oh, that sounds amazing. I love Woodstock, so. It was great. It was wild. And, and yeah, well, while we were there, um, I had one more record left on the deal that I was in. So, you know, there's a recording studio, and and, uh, we we figured, like, a project was good. At first, we started, we did shows every Sunday. We thought, okay, we'll do a Sunday service every Sunday until lockdown is over. (laughs) Forever. We got through eight never. shows and then we all wanted to kill each other. We're like, yeah. we gotta stop doing this. <laughs> like two months in, we're like, oh, I, know. I so, just burst into tears at the end of the last show yeah. while we were trying to sing Rainbow Connection. You know, <laughs> yeah, it, was a, it was a moment. So then, yes, yeah, so then we thought, well, let's make a record and I can, you know, finish up this deal. And then the label that I was with um, didn't want it they said it was too political or whatever and um and so they let me just walk away with it so um i don't know that's awesome yeah get to just it was take your (laughs) music sure i was like okay that's exactly what i wanted actually (laughs) um (laughs) so yeah so then we just kept recording and and you know i don't know i've been on so many labels at this point um and i just couldn't envision doing another you know yeah. that dance like that they just it's never what you want it to be so it just seemed like a good idea to start kind of reimagining you know the paradigm of what a structure of a record label could be and how it could actually serve the artist and and so this you know idea of an experiment kind of began and and now it's happening <laughs> yeah it happened really yeah. fast and i think we're still not exactly sure um how cool what we're about to do is going to be (laughs) yeah i was wondering like you know you're calling it like a co-op label Mm -hmm. and is that a term that already existed or is that something you guys came up with together um yeah i don't know it just seemed like you know like i'd I've dated people who've joined the Park Slope co-op, and I'm like, that's a cool structure. <laughs> and then, like, you know, my... That's a little militant structure. Yeah, but my, you know, <laughs> some friends have co-op apartments, and I just was, like, studying how all of that worked. And I was like, this seems like a better mm-hmm. idea of a way to do this. It's almost like a non-for-profit in a way, but, like, really it's just... Um, I don't know, I just think it's messed up that most artists don't own their masters and don't have you know the mm-hmm. rights to their own music and and um so yeah so that's the idea is everybody kind of you know pays a little into it and the 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 label as a whole tides to the community so every 10 songs we pick a charity that all of the money from that goes to and and then nobody ever loses their their masters either you know so we'll see see that. how it works <laughs> 
you know, it's like also, I mean, trying to figure out a way to, you know, sustainably make things and uh, also sort of launch them into the world in a way that feels nice, mm-hmm. like a community garden. Yeah. Um, but also mm-hmm. like a periodical, you know, uh, I think that uh, we've both gotten really into writing and uh, not just songs, but other things and enjoy the um, the sort of like, the you know, releasing a song and, a, and a, like a micro story and a picture because we have so many great friends that are artists and make these beautiful images. twice a month so that it almost becomes like a magazine or a periodical you know you get you know twice a month you get a a song and a picture and a story and maybe a video Mm -hmm. yeah i noticed that um holly you made the video for the ambrosia well the track that you two or ambassador, excuse me. <laughs> right. You hear that, Chris? Recorder in the job. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Dang it. <laughs> um, <laughs> that you two put out. Um, I guess you're both on the track Atlantis, uh, which is the second track you released, because the first track was Water is Life. That track was like the first track, I guess, you benefited Project Zero for ocean conservation. And then Atlantis, you two were on. So, Tell me a little bit about like how you decided like to which tracks to release first and like how that all came about. Well, Water is Life is something that I've kind of had in my pocket for quite a few years now. It was a it was a real uh, process of different collaborations from how it was written to how it was recorded and and so to me. Um, uh, Stuart Bogie, who produced it, had tried to go to a couple charities, and um, I think, well, this was like before Me Too, and there's a lyric in there where Kip says, um, he's singing about Mother Earth, and he says, stop raping her for oil, and there was a lot of charities that didn't want to touch the song because of that lyric, mm. and so I've just had this, you know, amazing song, and and I, I just wanted to, like, get that out there and do it because to me it felt separate than the the stuff that we were doing at Chris's or the stuff that Ambrosia and I did you know at High Pony and um and so to me that was kind of just a no-brainer of like kind of uh you know not going in chronological order because that's not what we're doing but I wanted that to feel a little bit separate than everything that's about to come after it and I also just felt anxious (laughs) to just want to get that out there you know Mm-hmm. And like two amazing music videos too to go along with the first two tracks. Yeah, the the Atlantis one was fun. Um, I did that with all public domain footage in like a like like a couple afternoons. I really I love editing video. <laughs> yeah, she's really good at it. I mean, I think now basically we're just playing tennis because the two of us we have so many songs and we both work on each other so you know it, we both feel invested and holly you know we just it's like a tennis game now at this point mm-hmm. until you know and there's other projects so by the time we get through our respective singles we've got other projects with other people and other writers that are feel very lucky to have been engaged with in the last year. Awesome. I was wondering what the significance was of the name of the label. Where did that come about? I need, um, it's the phonetic way of, of saying another, uh, the word is A-Y-N-I, and it's a, it's a way of living, I think it's with the Quechuan people of, uh, who came up with it or where the word comes from, but it's a way of living with uh, reciprocity so Mm. it's basically just like paying it forward Mm -hmm. it's um you know and i love that word and um and ambrosia came up with the idea of actually just saying i I mean nobody's gonna know how to say that yeah (laughs) and if you're gonna start a record label it's a lot like taking somebody's head and like smashing their face into your knee like like an eye into a knee it's basically how much fun starting a record label is apparently supposed to be so i thought (laughs) <laughs> and the logo too, which I drew, kind of looks like an eye or a knee, or maybe it's a boob, or maybe it's like two hands holding a planet, or I don't know. So it all just sort of fell together. And also, every name is taken. 
what has the response been so far to like the concept of the label and like how you're releasing it as more like a singles and like story, you know, separate stories for each song? My other friends who are like musician friends are totally stoked on the idea. We've actually already gotten a couple of like submissions of people wanting to, you know, um, to release stuff on it. We're, but we're just we're in such a infant stage of you know um but we'll get there and that's the idea too is that like whoever is on it it's sort of you're all working on each other's stuff too and and helping to promote each other and it's you know what i mean because because yeah. everyone's invested in in that way um but yeah my my uh i guess the reactions i've gotten have been really super positive and like yeah fuck yeah yeah, yeah. fuck yeah <laughs> <laughs> shit fuck yeah <laughs> I wanted to take it all the way back and kind of find out what both of you were listening to as kids and then into your teenage years and moving forward and kind of what your actual mixtape memories were. I would say uh, Dionne Warwick was huge for me and Dolly Parton and Linda Ronstadt. And it's funny too, because all three of them are having these huge resurgences mm -hmm. now, yeah. but they were indeed my like, those were my people from the time I was, you know, six to 12, you know, the, that was who I, those were the records that I had. And yeah, a lot of mixtapes. There was, it was all, I was, I was signed on a tape to Capitol Records, oh. like on a tape of three songs. So, you know, mixtapes to me were pretty standard issue. Yeah. Are you, were you more of like a giver or a receiver? Both, you know, it's funny because it, the, my, I made my first demo tapes with two handheld uh, tape cassette recorders. Wow. Where I would just record back and forth, like almost Bobby McFerrin style. Amazing. You know, singing back and forth, recording, playing, recording, playing, ch 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 and then also, yeah, I mean, so much recording off of the radio. Totally. Yeah, really horrible quality. And those, those were those Memorax with the, <laughs> like the, the, the red and the yellow and the blue circle, mm -hmm. triangle. Remember those? Were those like, Memorax? Well, or something like those clear tapes? Remember those? Yeah. With like the oh, geometric shapes yeah. on them? <laughs> yes. I think it was Memorax. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, uh, my beloved truck, uh, who I, I gave away to a friend, but I still see them all the time because they make deliveries in it. It had a, I, it had a tape cassette. And so he still has all of my tapes in there. Um, and a lot of them all have the hand printed, Checklist. you know, yes. in the teeny tiny writing mm -hmm. with the, with those, you needed the right pen. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you had to be very super precise. Fine point. <laughs> <laughs> had to be very precise, but um, yeah, and I and I I really I like tapes a lot. Hmm. What I like tapes a lot. I like the tapes are coming back too. <laughs> yeah, there's a slight resurgence with the tapes. Yeah, a little cassette we resurgence. Do, we should do a mixtape. Sure. What about you, Holly? Uh, do you have like mixtape memories from your youth? Um. I, I was like there was a little bit of mixtape in my youth, but I was more the the CD the CD boomer mm -hmm. baby. Yeah. Um. Uh. But I wasn't actually well. I grew up in a very strict um, born again Christian household, and I wasn't allowed to listen to music. So my choices were either Christian music or Motown, because that's what my parents had grown up on. We were in Detroit, or you know, outside when I was little, and um. So I grew up on a lot of Motown. And then, do you remember those CD mailers that uh, they used to have for, like, Columbia House? It would be in, like, magazines, yeah. and you'd tear them out, mm -hmm. right? So my sister, Kelly, so I was probably 10, and she was, like, 17. She started ripping off Columbia House by filling out all those CD mailers for, like, fake friends, like Belinda Carlisle, <laughs> but at our address. So she had all these CDs coming, and be like, pay a penny. Sand, baby. Yeah, and so I was, you know, it wasn't that suspecting if I ran out to the mailbox every day like an excited little 10-year-old. So she paid me, like, quarters or something to go and do this. So I was the only one that knew that she had this whole, like, 
pile of you know contraband next to our bed contraband gap it was like a gap uh one of those like weird gap things with a blanket over it you know to make it look not so obvious and so she would come home from high school like usually stoned and would put on her headphones and fall asleep in her room and it would be all dark and I would crawl in there with like a flashlight (laughs) and sneak out you know Nine Inch Nails and U2 and The Cure and Sarah McLachlan and 10,000 Maniacs and um, had to steal a U2 record yeah (laughs) and then I would listen to it in my headphones you know and it made it all so sacred for me Mm -hmm. and um and then my dad found the box and he read the lyrics to the Nine Inch Nails record about fucking the devil oh, in the backseat of the car. And I remember he broke that record in half. <laughs> I wonder if your dad has seen the, the little Nas video yet. <laughs> oh, no. But he made Kelly go and sell those to the local <laughs> record store. And then Columbia, Columbia House tried to sue her. Um, I was going to ask what happened with Columbia House. They must have caught on at some point. Yeah, they did. They sent like a letter uh, to Sue, and my dad was like, "My daughter's underage, and you're sending her this film." They just like dropped it and just left us alone. <laughs> but so, but like the damage was done, you know, for me. Then, then I had had a taste of the good stuff, and um, yeah, I wanted more. <laughs> and then I had a boyfriend. I had one boyfriend who <laughs> my my beard in Michigan he was a he had a local uh a DJ he was like Saturday night from like 2 to 4 a.m at the college and in the little town that we lived in so I would go and do his shows with him and he had great taste and he turned me on to like Curtis Mayfield and Taj Mahal and um and uh Jeff Buckley he came to the bakery that I worked at and gave me a bouquet of flowers and Jeff Buckley's grace and he told me that he was in love with me and I said I'm moving to New York (laughs) (laughs) and that was it you know it's funny that you mentioned that first of all I just want to say that I love 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 your cover of uh lover you should have come over I know it's like a million years old at this point but I love that cover but um, a friend of mine many years ago gave me uh, Jeff Buckley sketches and also kind of professed her love for me. And I was like, um, you don't know that I don't swing that way. <laughs> and I, I, it was very <laughs> awkward, but I kept the CD. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's a good one. But it also well, came I, with I a note. A... Oh, yeah. that's rough. Yeah. Well, Jeff Buckley kind of <laughs> emits that, you know, that feeling. Yeah. 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 Secret love. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good song. That's very 90s. Yeah. Secret love? Secret love. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, Holly, like, I actually met you in the aughts when kind of Brooklyn was like booming a little bit with indie rock music and you're part of this band, Jealous Girlfriends. But I, I actually met you because you sang on a track that one of uh, the bands I used to work with, you know, put out, sent me an angel. And I was like, I heard your voice and I was just like, what is this voice? (laughs) And so, and then ambassador, (laughs) you know, I actually met you through work as well. Um, I was working with a, a reproductive justice nonprofit called abortion access front. And you've done a lot of work for them. And, um, so it's kind of nice to kind of uh, see, you know, a little bit of this like um, turn where you guys have kind of broken free from this like label thing that uh, and taken control. And I love that ambassador. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so hard <laughs> to. Um, You'll get used. Yeah, to it. I'm. I'm gonna get used Just to relax. it. I swear. By the end of this yeah. podcast, it's just going to be natural. You know, you were actually also uh, in a group before called Chivalry. And what are some of like your kind of 90s memories and then aughts memories? And uh, I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of them. It's like 20, that's 20 years of memories. If you're referring specifically to seeing music in New York. Uh, around at those times, I would say the Bowery Ballroom and Maxwell's, some of the best shows that I saw during uh, uh, Sparkle Horse shows and mm-hmm. uh, and Jesus Lizard shows and Vic Chestnut shows, doing like 
fucked up residencies at the Nightingale and like what Baby Jupiter, which I think eventually became the living room. Yeah. Stuff like that, you know, peeing in the street and <laughs> kicking cabs. Are those bands that I <laughs> for a second I thought they were <laughs> my time, man. regular regular nineties <laughs> shenanigans, you know. <laughs> Wearing slip dresses and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because like, well, you know, you formed your band in '99. So, were you like touring through New York? Our record came out in '99, way after we actually made it. You know, we actually formed in '96 and then got caught up in so much red tape that our first record didn't come out until '99. And then by that point, we were already like half insane. <laughs> yeah. Which is a totally, uh, an absolutely just typical story. There's a lot of bands that just went through that same machine. Mm. I still just want to write pretty songs, you know? And so that it didn't really hurt that part of it. Yeah. Mm. That's what I do all day long. I just, (laughs) (laughs) if I'm not, you know, pretty songs from not raking or, or working behind a bar you know, or being a mom or, you know, I feel pretty lucky. Um, there's a lot of hours in the day to write songs, mm-hmm. even after you do all your chores. It's it's a luxury for me. You know, it's... And what has been, like, the inspiration lately? Like, what inspired, like, Atlantis and, like, you know, the songs that you've been writing lately? Well, Atlantis is just, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a song about death and rebirth. It's like the end of one world and time and the beginning of another. And I really feel like we're here witnessing that together. Yeah. You know, it, 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 I don't know how we go back to being what we were before the COVID. You know, it's always going to be a little bit different. Mm-hmm. And so... I think that a lot of people are still coming to terms with what exactly it is that they are mourning, you know, like it's the whole death of an entire way of life and a way of doing things and uh, a way of thinking about things and the things and the people and that you touch and the way that you operate, move through the world. Mm. It's going to be different from this point forward and everybody, all of us here together, we're unique and united in the fact that we all witnessed it at the same time. Yeah. And but one of the good parts that the upside of that is that we get to watch the the sun come up. We got we get to see what comes next together and help shape that and that's a beautiful fucking thing. Mm-hmm. So that's what Atlantis is. It's it's not a it's not it's not about the bombs and the death it's it's about the sun coming up the next morning and and what happens next Mm. it's a great message i love that yeah Mm -hmm. holly i was wondering about your early gigs in the city and how they were and kind of if you could discuss your kind of career growth through the last decade or so i moved to new york in 98 Mm -hmm. and i had uh i'd gone to new york the summer before to visit my sister when I was 15 and I played um, an open mic night at the Sidewalk Cafe and the anti-hootenanny that used to be on Monday nights. Mm-hmm. Um, and Latch was the host and uh, and the goal was to get a gig and I played my two little songs and he offered me a show but I didn't live there and I'd only written two songs. <laughs> and so I went back to Michigan and he we kept in contact and he wrote a little zine about like, I don't know if it was weekly or monthly and he mailed the zine to me and it was my first piece of press and I was so excited about it and um and and I remember reading it to my mother and she was like this soup needs more salt and I was like I think I have to get out of here mm-hmm. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and so I like scrimped and saved and plotted and planned and then moved the next summer and um and just started playing anywhere like anywhere that had a corner and like a shitty mic I would show up with my acoustic plugged in mm-hmm. and um sure it sounded terrible i played at this one place bar 13 and it literally was like a friday night like and they turned the music up. my friend was the bartender he's like just come and play so they turn off the music and just put a spotlight on me in the corner <laughs> like you know doing my best like ani defranco impersonation probably. <laughs> and um and then from there yeah you know there was some some f- 
failed some uh, like there's a record I've never heard my first one with a major label and then um and then another one that I won't let anyone hear and then I met Alex Lipson who owned uh, Headgear Studios in Williamsburg and I think my my girlfriend at the time or somebody was recording there and I just stopped by to hang out and he and I kind of just started shooting the shit and I gave him some of my demos and we decided to make a record and then that record became the Jealous Girlfriend's first album um and then yeah I would just hang out at the studio all the time just to try to absorb whatever I could because it was you know the yeah yeahs for making their first record and TV on the radio and Coco Rosie and um you know I don't know Interpol like it was just there was a lot happening and and um and I was you know just like a little bit younger than everybody and would just kind of sit and listen and try to like soak up as much as I could um and then yeah, in Jealous Girlfriends, we started playing a ton and touring a lot, and and then I lived at the Death by Audio House, which I think is how I got hooked up with the Dirty on Purpose guys mm. and sang on that "Send Me an Angel," which I heard a cover of that song, or maybe it was the original, I don't know, but I heard it in a hardware store the other day, and I was like, why is this so familiar? <laughs> and then it got to that part I sang, which I, I can't do it because I'll like, blow the mic out. But that other world I was like, oh sound. yes, <laughs> yeah. you know. Um, but yeah, it was it was such a like free fun time, and I'm sure everybody thinks that of their like youth when they first get to New York. But I feel like that scene in Brooklyn, there wasn't it wasn't overpopulated. You know, Williamsburg, like the train still didn't like go there all the time. You know, there was uh, um, I don't know like sex workers on the street, and everybody was cool with it, and and. Uh, I don't know. It was a little. It was a little uh, dangerous, but it, it it created a lot of space for a lot of artists to find their voice. You know, I think specifically Zebulon was one of mm -hmm. those venues where, for a decade, they would just let you do what you want. You know, Joss and Jeff would give me the night to book whoever I wanted. Um, I remember sneaking like Sharon Von Etten in to like play between you know people and. And I got to try every incarnation of a band. Like at one show, I had a sitar player, and like you know, it was just like you could just experiment. And if nobody came, it wasn't that big of a deal. Like I feel really bad for for artists now with like the whole like pay to have a soundtrack and pay if you don't bring X amount of people. It's just like how are you meant to to you know to hone and to like develop your your voice in that in that yeah I feel like there was climate. a time where it was more about do I like this band do I want to like kind of nurture this band and that's how you know bookers would book and now it's totally different <laughs> and it's so mm -hmm. business oriented I don't know how it's going to be after everyone comes back you know are people going to be booking differently because maybe their perspectives are different now and you know mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like that can affect people too. So we'll see if there's a change in how people mm -hmm. decide who they're going to champion and, you know. Yeah. Ambassador, where did you grow up? I don't know if we covered uh, I grew up in the San Fernando Valley oh. in the 70s. Nice. So you feel like no. that probably like informed... <laughs> A lot. I mean, are you in LA now, or? No, I'm in. Uh, I'm in the, the middle of the woods right oh, now. Oh, right, the middle. Of the talking woods. into a spoon. <laughs> but I grew up <laughs> in the San Fernando Valley, um, and yes, it did inform uh, the way that I write songs, uh, the way that I write stories, everything. I would say, for absolutely sure, that is the filter through which I shoot most ideas. Or things that I stumble upon. Mm -hmm. Your songs are definitely like telling stories. I mean, both of you, I feel like, are really good at lyric writing, which I feel like is a lost art a lot of times <laughs> in music. Mm -hmm. I like to really find someone who pays attention to the lyrics and the story that they're trying to tell. And and it's interesting because both of you kind of have like this like I don't know, like almost like sultry like breathy like quality to your uh vocals but maybe in different octaves or like tones and stuff like that i really felt like in your earlier music uh amb ambassador um <laughs> that uh, you know 
you almost had like a, a, a like a really kittenish quality to your voice and 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 then I was a kitten yeah. <laughs> and and now I'm uh, and now you know I'm not so much of a kitten yeah I feel like it's really so that's gonna happen <laughs> evolved maybe tiger I don't know what you would call it now <laughs> tigress <laughs> a tigress um so yeah like and 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 then Holly, I feel like your vocals also have like grown so much over the years, and your songwriting also has just like really grown. Um, how, what do you think like helps to like evolve like as an artist in that way? Where like you're kind of starting off and you're just like trying to find your your sound, you know, like how you write music and stuff, and then to like now where it's like I feel like you really are owning your spaces. I think not really ever being super successful is really helpful for that, to be honest. Well, because I know so many people where it's like they make one record, everyone loves it, and then they just keep making that same record over and over and over because I'm sure there's outside pressure and there's inside pressure. And I mean, Ambrosia has had um, much more commercial success than I have, so I, I can't speak to yours, but... Um, but for me, I think it's just I never want to do the same thing twice. I want to keep growing and keep trying something different. And, um, and you know, not that there hasn't been external or internal pressure, but uh, there's not like a, a format to stick to because, you know, it won some award or something. <laughs> like, yeah. You know? I mean, there's always, I feel like, with anything that somebody is making – and putting out in the world, whether it's a song or a story or a meal, uh, an outfit, a hairdo, and if people like it, you it's 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 a hard it's hard to resist chasing that line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I think that being and this, you know, we it, it's funny because I, I never really actually thought about it specifically until Holly and I taught uh, the class this summer to these young writers um it's really just a walk on the beach and you know you might find some amazing fucking shell once in a while but you know you're just gonna have to put it on the shelf and keep walking you know it's just Mm -hmm. about continuing to wander and uh and look and hunt and listen and strangers and you know people uh people in life and love and things that happen yeah. for better or worse. Uh, that's, that's what happened. You know, you wake out of, up out of a dream and you think there's a ghost. <laughs> it's just, a, it's just chasing a, <laughs> chasing, chasing a tiny line that excites you and following it down a, a rabbit hole, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. That's a cool way to put it. I feel like, you know, a lot of it is like be, being willing maybe to tap into your feelings and like what's going on around you and like being, you know, kind of aware of your experiences too, maybe, right? Well, that's where it all starts. I mean, if you're a person that likes that kind of thing, then you might be a person who writes songs or writes stories or, you know, and if you're not, then you'll figure out you'll be a microsurgeon or whatever the fuck else. <laughs> <laughs> Did you experience like, um, like maybe more pressure, like when, like when Shivery's song "Goodnight Moon" was like in Kill Bill Two, like something like that, where maybe you're getting a little bit of attention from that, and you're on like a major label and stuff like that. Like, is it? Sure. I mean, like you know, because it, you know, it's a, it's it's something that that goes down a lot of streets. It's not just the fact that you are getting positive attention, which is awesome and feels great and if you're a human person with a heartbeat you're not you can't help but like it but it also affords you an opportunity to pay your friends mm-hmm. pay your band pay and then all of a sudden especially in the 90s when there was actual money and you were you know you were paying a makeup artist you were paying stylists you were pay, and you got to know them and they all became your friends and you knew their kids and you knew that like if you got you know if you're if you're if that 
got cut off for you, then you would not no longer be able to employ them. And it was a lot of stress. And especially as if you come up as, which many of us do from somewhere where you don't really have much to begin with. And all of a sudden there's this opportunity for you to take care of people. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's very alluring. There's, there's so many little secret hidden things about any little bit of success that um that are just they're so it's so tempting you know Mm -hmm. that's you know that's part of it but eventually it goes away and everything shakes out and you know people lose houses and people have kids and people it's just life you know and you just this it's very full and it's a sad and beautiful world as Mark Link is, if we're going to talk about Sparkle Horse or, you know what I mean? It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's all of it. And, um, and eventually if you still feel like it, when you get to the end of <clears throat> all of the very strange and uh, twisted journey that it can be, if you still want to write songs, then you can, you can do whatever you want. Mm. Well put. Should we hop into repeat skip? Yeah. Sure. Okay. So our first selection is Blind Melon self-titled album from 92, their big breakthrough. Ambassador, you want to tell us some memories of this release? That's this is Holly's record, right? Yeah. The Blind the I mean, is this the one with the with the what is this? Uh, With no rain, of course. I don't practice Santeria. No. <laughs> oh, that, that, that was the sublime. Sublime. That's sublime. This is the B. Oh, Dude, it's been a really long day. It was, you don't even understand. There's no rain. It's the, the uh, B girl. Why, why the are you B-girl. asking me about Holly's? Tra- it's the B girl. It's Holly's record. Okay, okay. Holly even, can go I first. I didn't even write down any notes about it at all. Like I didn't even pick it. It's no fair. I'm spreading the um, love. Okay, we'll start with Holly. Yeah. You talk about Blind Melon. <laughs> you talk about Sublime. Um, I, I want to sing Santa Maria now. Actually, we're now going okay. to Accounting Crows section. <laughs> um, this was one of those records that was in the chest next to my sister's bed that I dug out. And... Um, I didn't like the the my skip was the was the single. I wasn't into No Rain. Oh. That wasn't mm-hmm. my song. My song was Tones of Home, which I think was buried pretty late in the record, but that was my repeat, repeat, repeat. And still I put it on the other day, I was like, This is still such a good song and I still can't hit some of the notes that he's singing. <laughs> like it's it's um I don't know, it spoke to me in my uh angsty ten year old <laughs> body when I discovered it. Was this one of those Columbia records? <laughs> yeah, this was one of the ripoffs from the, uh, the tear-out sheet. It's probably mailed to uh, who knows? Dion Warwick at our address. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was uh, there were so many good records in that. I probably could have put a Cranberries album on here too. because that. Was oh one, yeah, but... those early Cranberries records are so good. Oh my god! I used to play it so loud in my headphones. Like I don't know how, and it was like I couldn't get it loud enough. Like that's mm. how I felt about, and I couldn't play anything on stereo because then somebody would find out what I was listening to. So I just had like a little CD player with headphones hooked up to it. Um, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, like the weird headphones they had that were like this. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah, trying to hold them down so you couldn't hear. <laughs> well, it had to have been tough because there are some moments on this album that are pretty like guitar heavy and. Very like ram 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 ram. No. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was just such a banging record. But yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't so into No Rain, and I wasn't allowed to watch TV. So I didn't. Um, not that I was allowed to totally watch TV, but definitely wasn't allowed to watch MTV or anything that had magic in it or whatever. So Barnabas <laughs> was such a drag. I know it was such a like weird thing, but. Um, so I never saw the music video. I didn't have any of like the visual reference that I feel like everybody else mm-hmm. had, and. Um, and I probably didn't know when he, you know, died. I, I just, I just knew that I loved that song, Tones of Home, and um, yeah, that's mine. Yeah, I feel like Shannon Hoon, the singer, like he definitely had like such a distinct voice and really like beautiful at times, actually. You know, mm-hmm. um, 
when it gets very delicate in the songs versus like when it's you know more loud and stuff (laughs) (laughs) that's half the album (laughs) 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 what was that ambassador i was i was not into i would yeah I totally like. I mean, I mean, I remember the single on MTV, but I was not down. I was, I wasn't into it. I couldn't imagine this would be a record you'd be into. I no. feel like that's why I chose it. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess you don't have a, a repeat uh, ambassador. <laughs> I'm supposed to pick a repeat of the of Holly's too. Oh yeah. Shit. Oh, I didn't know that. I guess the one with the B. <laughs> no, okay. Holly, get ready. <laughs> uh, I think I'm going to take the B. What was Ambrosia's record? Sublime? <laughs> no. 40 Ounces to Freedom? <laughs> my Ruka? So my my skip on the, on the self-titled Blind Melon record was No Rain. And my repeat was Tones of Home, which I think, yeah, was buried pretty deep. Like, I don't think that was, I think it was like a deep cut. And How does know. Tones of Home go? Tones of home is like, since you don't like the way I'm living, don't like this. Tones of home, tones of home. So I wave goodbye. Ew. <laughs> nice. You want to play that over and over again? I was 10 and I wanted to get out of where I was. Right, and I fine. was like, yes, tones of home is my song. <laughs> and then he started scatting and I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Skip to the guitar solo. Yeah, it's funny what you gravitate towards, right? Because it's always like something you latch onto. So you have like a nostalgic memory of that mm. song, kind of really pushing you out of like the home and into the world, you know. Mm-hmm. And and so I didn't actually listen to this album when it came out. Like I only knew really the single, and I I might have heard tones of home because I feel like they might have released that at some point. Mm. But uh, I just listening to it for this episode gravitated more towards the song change and um and it's not like i like the black crows or something but it, it had the like that crows. kind of vibe you mean sublime uh. <laughs> but to me the song change kind of has a black crows vibe to it oh okay <laughs> and i like that you know Southernish, rockish, you know, long hair kind of vibe to it. <laughs> but I was actually reading that this change was actually the first song he ever wrote, the singer mm. Shannon. He said oh, wow. he wrote it during uh, while he was waking up from a drug binge, and that he used to sing the song to his mother, and she grew very fond of it. Oh. So that's the story he, of that He song. sang the song to his mom when he was waking up from a drug binge. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I mean, and she's like, that's great. That's nice, dear. <laughs> yeah, actually, oh, like, there's a verse that I, from that song, I guess, is on his gravestone. So, oh, well. so. Hmm. now anyway, I feel not bad. to get too bored. <laughs> 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 Sorry, Shannon. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I mean, I, I like No Rain, and I think because I was watching MTV and I did see the video with the B-Girl, like, I do have, like, that nostalgic attachment to it. So it's, like, one of those, you know, 90s tracks that just, like, yeah, gives me some, like, teenage memories. And then Skip, I picked Dear Old Dad because just because the title is triggering. <laughs> yeah. That's my only. I'll go with you. I'll, I'll, I'm going to concur on that one. what about you matt (laughs) so i never listened to this album in its entirety i mean i never really listened to anything except the single to be honest um but uh revisiting this today um i was more drawn to kind of the slower more i guess experimental type stuff than the more like 70s uh southern rock kind of like gnarly kind of thing that wasn't my bag and it's still not my bag but um i picked sleepy house and then obviously the uh the single no rain uh but i will say this about no rain it's um it really is the anomaly on the record it doesn't really sound like anything else mm. uh for better or worse um i guess depending on your taste level but uh it, it it's i could see why that was obviously pushed as like 
the single, you know. Mm. And I would skip a lot of this release, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> I would skip about 80% of this album. <laughs> This message is ambassador approved. <laughs> you know what I love though is is tonight we have two albums that are so wildly different from one another. I think it's really it's a fun contrast. Should we just get into that second album? Yes. <laughs> so the second album we have tonight is Money Mark Push the Button, which came out in '98. Money Mark, he was. A producer and musician and you know I feel like a lot of people know him from his work with the BC boys and you know actually I can see that uh, in a couple of the tracks on this push the button album like that kind of BC vibe um, but the album's a little bit all over the place as far as like sound goes so for me it was a little schizophrenic but more instrumentals than i think a lot of people normally are used to but that's part of money mark's thing mm -hmm. yeah um and it's one of the reasons why he kind of came to mind when you suggested this game because uh i love his his they're called isolation isolation jams that he's been doing since the beginning of the covid on his instagram and uh i think since last march right around the time Holly and I came up here and I found them right away and found them extremely comforting and, uh, and joyous. And he also just writes a really mean little pop song. Yeah. Like there were three records that I played obsessively when I moved to New York between, you know, like 97 and 98. And this was one of them. The miseducation of Lauren Hill was another. Um, and the cat power moon picks was another. I would say for my my repeat, and it's hard. It's a hard choice, but my repeat would be tomorrow will be like today. Yeah, that I picked that as well. Yay! Um. I mean, <laughs> I'm a bartender too, so um, that that one would really get people going on the on the stools. I have to say, it's super poppy. It really reminds me of like Elvis Costello vibes. A good. It's a it's a it's a solid little carburetor of a song that just serves many of my needs when um, I want to be happy. But there's a lot of things on that record to enjoy, you know, like uh, push the button. It was like, I remember putting that on a lot, making coffee, making the bed, figuring out how, you know, what to do next that day. Um, yeah. And rock in the rain always reminded me of like Madonna's crazy for you. Hmm. And then a lot of the instrumentals on that record feel like his isolation jams, but I would say the one that I would skip would be the Da Teen Ta, just because it just feels too much like a spa, like a weird, like <laughs> weird, like bad spa music. <laughs> I actually thought that one kind of was like almost like a precursor to like MIA or something. <laughs> <laughs> It's got like the Indian kind of like rhythms. It's like, like yeah, now you're going to get a weird, uncomfortable massage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, so. yeah, maybe he licensed it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I, I mean, Push the Button definitely got, I mean, that opens the album up too, you know, like, and so, and that. I could totally see the beastie kind of vibe coming from that as well as like powerhouse. But um, mm -hmm. I chose to skip um, poor shakes just cause I mean, it's like a 30 second kind of yeah. instrumental like interlude really. Yeah. Yeah. I felt the same. Um, felt You felt gypped. You're like, yes. Oh, in general, I just seconds long. How, how dare you? <laughs> That's kind of my thing, though. If there's a song that's under a minute and it doesn't serve much of a purpose, I'm over it. Or if it's like, or if it's like the closing track on an album and it's 18 minutes, I, I don't have the patience. Um, but uh, my repeat was uh, towards the beginning of the album, Monkey Dot. I think in general, I actually really like the instrumental tracks on this release, possibly even more so than the ones uh, with vocals. Um, but I agree with Jin's criticism. I kind of feel like... Um, it, it, yeah, it kind of jumps around and it's a little haphazard and a little all over the place. Um, but I think overall it kind of works. Overall, I enjoyed it. But yeah, I've never really listened to this when it came out. So it's kind of nice to hop into it. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the, also he sang on, 
for the first time on this album, right? Maybe. I'm not sure. Um, uh, but I just, I, I, don't, I, I, I don't even remember how I happened across this record, probably because, I mean, there was such a, like a wild record swap. You would like go around and anytime you went and did any work anywhere, like to your record label, like they would give you a giant box full of CDs and most of them you would go sell them at Kim's, but you would keep <laughs> yep. like 10 or 12 or, you know, whatever. And they would give you real money for it. Like, I remember, like, I would go just like to have lunch with somebody at the record label and they would give you a giant box of CDs and then you would march straight to Kim's and they would give you like $125 for most of the box. And then you would just go home with like 11 of them in your purse and, you know, um, I think that's how I found it, which I found a lot of music in the 90s that way, which is oh, yeah. cute. It's kind of cute. Perks. I loved Kim's. Um, yeah. <laughs> a friend of mine was actually uh, a music buyer there at one point. But um, yeah, it's a it's a crazy uh, thing. But like, also, I noticed um, you both, Money Mark and you, he had a song called Bossa Nova 101. And right. I like you also... I had a song called Bossa Nova and um, and it used to make everybody really mad, but because it was originally written to the Bossa Nova button on this one drum machine and then we changed it. But before that, we always referred to it as Bossa Nova when we were playing. So it never changed. And then it ended up on a record called Bossa Nova, but it wasn't a Bossa Nova anymore. And there are entire like a YouTube chains of people like being like, she doesn't even know what a bossa nova is. And I know this isn't a bossa nova anymore, but we just call this song that because at one time it was, but whatever. That was the nineties. We didn't give a shit, man. We would just call something that wasn't even a bossa nova, a bossa nova. And then we would kick a cab and pee in the gutter and go home in our strip dress. There you go, full circle. I miss so much. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Well, Holly, I'm. I don't know if you have any uh, memories or <laughs> any feelings about Holly. Was only four in the night. She's like, I was just at home watching the backyard agains or whatever. It was probably Not wasn't even. one of those Columbia CDs. I was probably watching Veggie Tales. <laughs> <laughs> like to talk to tomatoes <laughs> <laughs> oh my god you yeah, know I what though <laughs> i like the story of money mark though because like i feel like it's cool that he just like moved from detroit to like la and like just was like you know a friend like asked him to like do some repairs and some some building or something and then that's how he ran into the beastie boys <laughs> i think he just... was like six years old when he moved to la but i don't know he's pretty cool maybe he was like <laughs> on his own <laughs> maybe he was hanging out on with the own. beastie boys when he was six i don't know <laughs> um <laughs> just like we didn't know anybody who could play instruments before <laughs> and then and then they kind of created this like whole sound you know together and, yeah and he he's just so like like um his range is so wide like he's it feels like he can kind of go anywhere and so he's worked with so many different kinds of people so i think it's a testament to like you know what you can accomplish just being in the right place at the right time and knowing how to play actual instruments. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He was in, he was really super filled with love. Well, thank you so much for coming and being guests on our podcast. This is so fun. Thanks for having uh, us. Thanks to thank you for having me. I'm so, um, yeah. Thank you for tolerating me. <laughs> Thank you for calling you ambassador. <laughs> <laughs>
we will catch you next time on another episode of Mixtape Memories. Bye. 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 It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.